Okay, as we read Psalm 81, um, let me just ask you to think, you know, what are some key ideas or themes or words used throughout this psalm? The heading says, for the choir director on the Geteth, a psalm of Asaph. Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout joyfully to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, strike the timbrel, the sweet-sounding lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. He established it for a testimony in Joseph. When he went throughout the land of Egypt, I heard a language that I did not know. I relieved his shoulder of the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. You called in trouble and I rescued you. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. I proved you at the waters of Meribah, Salah. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you would listen to me. Let there be no strange God among you, nor shall any nor shall you worship any foreign God. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart, to walk in their own devices. Oh, that my people would listen to me that Israel would walk in my ways. I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. And those who hate me, hate the Lord, would pretend obedience to him. At the time of punishment, and the time of their punishment, their time of punishment would be forever. But I will feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Now, were there any ideas or thoughts, words that stood out to you in reading of that particular psalm? Belonging from God to have a relationship with His people. Okay, God's longing to have a relationship with His people. You know, that's a that is a key point. Um, you're right, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, Gary. Oh, that my people would listen to me, in verse 13. And really, verse 8 had that same kind of idea. Oh, Israel, if you would listen to me. God is wanting his people to have a relationship with him. God is not seeking to hide. God is not seeking to hide. God is wanting fellowship with us. What else stands out? <clears throat> Reference to Egypt always uh, is of interest. Okay. References to Egypt, Egyptian bondage, uh, and God's deliverance from that. You particularly see that in verse 10. I, the Lord, am your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Something also we hope to talk about a little bit more. One of the things that may not be easy to detect because it's translated with some different words, but a key idea is the word hear, heard, or listen 
which is translated a translation of the same word. Uh, that word appears quite frequently uh, throughout the psalm. It appears in verse 5, a couple of times in verse 8. It appears in verse 11, and I believe also in verse... Uh, verse 13. So, it, hear or listen. We'll come back to everything you all said in a moment. But the psalm begins with a call to praise God. To praise Him. To exalt Him. To magnify who He is. It says, sing for joy to God. Our strength. Sing with joy for him, shout joyfully to the God of Jacob. The idea of God being the God of Jacob appears in verse four as well. Uh, an ordinance for the God, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. It will appear when we get to Psalm eighty-four in verse eight. And so we, we've seen it a couple of times recently. We'll see it a couple of times in the near future. The same God that, that made the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is their God. The same God that was merciful to Jacob and long-suffering to him and kept his promises to him in spite of Jacob's failure is their God. Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout joyfully to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. So shout joyfully, raise a song. He mentions several instruments here in verse 2 and 3. Strike the timbrel, the sweet-sounding lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet of the new moon. So all of these things, uh, all the singing, all the playing, is associated with their feast. It says, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. Now there's a lot of questions as to what feast day is being described in 81.3. What particular feast serves as the setting for this particular psalm? It is not easy to tell what feast it is. But he does mention specifically the new moon in verse 3. New moon was a celebration that took place every month. You read of it in Numbers 28, verses 11 through 15. The, the new moon. There are just a few references to this scattered throughout the Old Testament. Um, I just ask you, I know this is a difficult question. Can you remember any of them offhand? I know it's a very difficult question to answer. But what would be some references to the new moon made in the Old Testament story? Okay, David's fleeing from Saul in 1 Samuel 20. And it's new moon, and they are meeting with Jonathan, um, Abner, and David all meet together. It, it just it's kind of just mentioned incidentally in that particular case, but but it is alluded to. Another case 
is in 2 Kings 4, verse 23. This is the child that Elisha promised this older couple. Uh, the child has died. And the woman wants to rush and go see the prophet. She doesn't even tell her husband that the child is dead. She just lays him in Elisha's room. And he says, why do you want to go to see the prophet? It's not a new moon. Which shows it was a special religious occasion that people might have been expected to do something like that. To inquire of God. To inquire of a prophet. Uh, but there are a couple of passages that indicate that Israel didn't do too well with this. In Isaiah 1, uh, verse 13, God rebukes them because their new moons were an abomination to him. And in Amos chapter 8, verse 5, they could not wait for the new moon to be over, or the new moon and the Sabbath to be over, where they could go out and cheat their neighbor. And so it's mentioned, alluded to several times in the Old Testament. It happens monthly again, according to Numbers 28. There were special sacrifices. Is this the occasion or is that simply, um, some have suggested that it may be the new moon on the seventh month because the seventh month, uh, at the first of the month, that new moon was kind of a Jewish New Year. And during that was the Day of Atonement. And during that was the Feast of the Tabernacles. I don't, don't want to get lost in that. But I do want to give you a little explanation. But in verses 4 and 5, it was a statute for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. He established it for a testimony in Joseph. Now, the word Joseph here, is spelled differently than it is anywhere else in the Old Testament. I still think it refers to the same Joseph, but why that is, I'm not exactly sure. It's, it's not necessarily anything sinister, but it, but it has a couple of consonants added. So uh, he established it for a testimony in Jacob. When he went out, we went throughout the land of Egypt. Now, God's going to mention Egypt again in verse 10, as Boyd mentioned. I want to ask you a question here, though. And this is a question that I'm not sure the answer to either. In verse 5, I heard a language I did not know. Okay, first of all, who's the, he, who's the I? And what does that mean? Who is, what's a language that I didn't know? Anybody have a thought there? I just have a note written in my Bible from some previous study that uh, possibly God hearing Israel's cries. Okay, okay. So the I would be God, and hearing the language that he didn't know would be a reference to him hearing their cries. I do think it's one of the main three possibilities there. What would be a couple of others? Could they be in a foreign land? Okay. They're in a foreign land, and it may be the Israelites are speaking when they're saying this. I heard a language I did not I did not know. The I could be some kind of representative of the nation who is saying that we are in a foreign land 
where we don't know the language. That was one that happened in Exodus, that happened in the curses of the covenant. Deuteronomy 28, verse 49 mentions that you'll be carried captive to a language and to to people whose language you don't understand. You see in Jeremiah 5.15 that's going to happen when the people are taken to Babylonian captivity. When we get to Psalm 114 verse 1, it will mention the days in Egypt as days when they were exposed to a strange language. So it could refer to a representative of the nation saying, we're in this language, we're in this country, and we don't understand the speech. Now, um, when we lived in a, in a foreign country, first of all, nobody could tell just by appearance that we were foreigners. Um, and in a way that's convenient in a way that's inconvenient because it's convenient because you're not singled out as a special target for robbery or anything like that. Um, but sometimes people might come up and ask you a question and you don't know what they're saying. Uh, and uh, that's difficult. Now, there are some questions we figured out um, even though we never uh, didn't know how to say the answer like when somebody comes up, and this is just good information to all of you, if somebody, you're in the Czech Republic and someone comes up and says, Koliki Hodin, just point to your watch. You know, just, you don't have to say anything. Just hold your watch out because they're asking, what time is it? And, um, uh, but there are various things like that. But you did feel badly when you know sometimes somebody was asking you something. And you couldn't respond. You, you didn't know what they were saying. And sometimes if, if it was a situation where we could, we would explain we didn't speak English or didn't speak Czech. And so if they needed help and we were the only ones around, they might explain something in English. But uh, that is a, a something that, that we, um, we may not appreciate fully. I would also say that it could be that I is still a representative of the nation. But another possibility, kind of the opposite of what John said, it could be some in the nation when they heard God's voice that they viewed hearing God's voice as a strange thing. A strange thing. Because they haven't been listening to him. So it could be that the people view God's voice is strange. It could be that God is viewing their voice as strange. Or it could be they're viewing the nation as strange. Now, now I, I, again, I don't want to get lost in this. But a lot of the answer in commentaries, um, commentaries go both ways on this. And, and what happens, some of them can get pretty dogmatic without giving any evidence really. <laughs> Uh, but it depends on whether you see this as part of the end of verses 1 through 5. If it is the end of verses 1 through 5, I think this is more likely. If it is the beginning of verses 6 through 16, 
then I think it's more likely that, that either John's possibility that it's, they're hearing God's voice or they, uh, they're, they're hearing God's voice or God's hearing their voice, that that's more possible. Usually when, when the first person singular is used in this psalm, it is God speaking. But, but we're, we're dwelling on the difficulties. I don't want us to miss some of the plain points of the passage. And some of the plain points is God is telling the people what he has done for them. How he has blessed them. In verse 6, I relieved his shoulder of the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. You know, if, if an animal had a yoke that was tied around his neck and he was carrying a heavy load, for that to be relieved would be a great uh, sense of freedom. And Israel were slaves in the land of Egypt. And they were oppressed. And they were mistreated. And God is relieving his shoulder of the burden. And his hands were free. Vicki? I need to go back to verse 4. Okay. Uh, and verse 5. Let his deeds be known that the psalm is referring to. For it is a statue, he made it a decree. What is the it? I think is the call to praise in the first three verses. The call to praise and whatever feast he is talking about. I think that that is probably the best explanation there, okay? Yes, thank you. Um, but, but I understand that that is not, uh, at first you read that and it does seem like you know, you could have, did I miss something? But I go, as I went back and looked over it, kept reading over it, I think that that's what it is hitting at. Um, but verses 6 and 7 are stressing how thankful the people should be for God's deliverance. I mean, they are an animal carrying a heavy yoke or a people carrying a heavy yoke. And God has relieved the burden from them. And his hands were freed from the basket. As they, uh, as they, baskets are not mentioned in the book of Exodus in, in this context. But, uh, but it may have been that they carried bricks in their basket from place to place. But they called when they were in trouble and God rescued they, God answered in the hiding place of thunder and says, I proved you at the waters of Meribah. First of all, I think the passage just reminds us when God has delivered us and God has been good to us, we need to work as diligently as we can to keep the memory of that alive, to keep the memory of God's deliverance alive. It is easy to forget. We face a crisis. We face a trouble. We know there's no way out. We beg God to deliver us. Somehow, against all odds, He delivers us. How long does that memory stick with us? And I would suggest, I don't know how many times in your life you've been in that situation. But everybody here that's a Christian has been in that situation at least in dealing with the problem of sin. And God removed the burden from our shoulders. 
and freed our hand from carrying the heavy basket. We called in trouble and God rescued. All of this, a picture of how he's delivered us and how he has uh, saved us from our difficulties. And he says in verse 7, I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. Now what do you think that is? What's the hiding place of thunder? Sinai is the most likely explanation with the lightning and the thunder in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. Some have suggested the crossing of the Red Sea as well, but there's no mention of thunder in that context. But some people say, well, in Psalm 77, it sure makes it sound like that in verses 16 through 20 when it talks about the crossing of the Red Sea. So, so he's referring to something with the Exodus, isn't it? Whether it's the crossing of the sea or, or more likely the, 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 uh, the events at Mount Sinai, God has shown himself to be God in a dramatic and in a powerful way. And it says, I proved you at the waters of Meribah. Now remember there were two places in the Old Testament that were spoken of as Meribah. In Exodus 17, Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, the Bible talks about how at Meribah the people were complaining and Moses says, I'm afraid they're going to stone me. God tells Moses to take his rod and, uh, and to strike the rock and water comes out of it. And uh, then in Numbers 20, Numbers 20, God says, speak to the rock. And he said, Moses speaks to the people and strikes the rock. Water comes out. But there God doesn't approve of his actions. But both places are spoken of as Meribah. But, but I think what God is stressing in verses 6 and 7 especially... God is to be praised in verses 1 through 5. And God is to be praised because God has delivered them in Egypt. God has guided them through the wilderness. God has manifested His presence at Sinai. God has shown them that He is God. And what questions do you have? Or what thoughts do you all have there? You look at those verbs in 6 and 7, you know relieved, freed, rescued, answered, proved all the things God did for them. Yes. All the things he did for them. And many of those are used some ways in the New Testament to talk about what he's done for us, you know, as well. Their redemption story. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Anything else? What other thoughts? Okay, verse 8. Hear my people, and I will admonish you. Now, verse 5, somebody heard. It may have been God heard the people's cry, but somebody heard. But now God is calling upon his people to hear. He's calling upon his people to hear. Sorry, that's hard for you to see, Avery. That was a bad thing about getting that seat. But here. My people, and I will admonish you. Always a fundamental part 
of being God's people from the beginning till the end of time is listening to God. It was true of Adam and Eve in the garden. It was true of Israel in the Old Covenant. It is true for us in the New Testament. Remember Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus in the Transfiguration. And Peter said, Lord, let us build three tabernacles. And the cloud overshadows them. And the voice says, this is my son. Listen to him. Hear him. Listening to God. Hearing God. Has always been fundamental to being the people of God. Hear my people. And I will admonish you. Uh, there's a passage. Sometimes this psalm is compared to Psalm 95. You may remember that Psalm 95 has that line around verses 7 and 8. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hear my people and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you would listen to me. And this is one of the things that, that Gary was talking about earlier. Where God is wanting his people to be in a relationship with him. God is wanting his people to be in fellowship with him. Oh, Israel, if you would listen to me. He's going to come back to that idea and build upon it even more later. But what does it mean they need to listen to God? Well, one of the most fundamental things about a relationship with God is that a relationship with God excludes a relationship with any other gods. You know, when you made a covenant with a king in the ancient Near East, your relationship with one king excluded you being in a relationship with other kings. You cannot make a covenant with this king one day. And, and we find in later in Israel's history, they get in trouble for that. Kings like Zedekiah make a covenant with Babylon, but then he goes back and makes a covenant with Egypt. You can't do that. You can't do that. And, and you can't do that in your relationship with God. Let there be, verse 9, no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. You don't, you don't serve any other God. You don't worship any other God. And in verse 10, I, and that I is emphatic. I, I try to circle those in my translation. I the Lord and your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Now I want to read those together because in a sense verse 10 is like Exodus 20 verse 2 in the beginning of the Ten Commandments or Deuteronomy 5 and verse 16 or Deuteronomy 5 and verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Same thing he says in verse 10. I am, I the Lord am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then in verse 9 he said you're to have no strange gods. You remember the first commandment was you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20 verse 3, Deuteronomy 5 and verse 7. You're not to have any other gods before me. I am the Lord. I the Lord am your God. Now, Gary used that term relationship, relationship, fellowship, communion. Um, 
And I know we, we can use communion in a more limited sense, but, but we can use it in a broader sense. But all those terms can be um, interchangeable. And you see the interchangeable use of those words in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 16. Can light a fellowship with darkness? Has, uh, and, and all those terms are used in parallelism. But, but this is my point. Um, relationship, fellowship. One of the greatest phrases in the Bible that really we can trace in some fashion or another all the way from Genesis to Revelation, and it shows this idea of relationship with God, is, is this phrase, this is a shorthand version of it here. It says, I, the Lord, I am your God. And, and how is that often stated uh, about Israel? It is, sometimes it's a longer statement. I am your God and you you are my people. You are my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. Now, that is relationship. Just like Song of Solomon. I am my beloved and he is mine. You know, this speaks of an intimate, exclusive relationship. And this speaks of an intimate, exclusive relationship. God is your God. And we are His people, my people. The phrase is used, sometimes it's used in a shorter form, but it, it first appears in God's promises to Abraham, I will be a God to you and your descendants. But, but it goes all the way to Revelation 21 verse 7 where I will be your God and you will be my sons. I think it's how it's worded. So it's not always worded exactly that way. But I love that phrase. I love tracing that phrase throughout the Bible just to show us and to show us too God's amazing persistence in this relationship. I mean, there were times that God could have washed his hands and God could have given up and God said, okay, that's it. That's it. And, and Especially when it comes to any, any relationship you need to have communication both ways. Yeah. It, it doesn't work if just one person is communicating the other person isn't listening. That's why God says, here are my people. How frustrating is it for us as people if we're talking to somebody and you realize that they're not listening to you? Yeah. yeah. And you can imagine how frustrating that's got to be for God. <laughs> yes. Yeah, as, he, as he shows in this, in this section. That's right, Gary. And, and you think about for this relationship to have survived with God and his people, God's the one that's kept it together. You know, maybe sometimes you've seen a, a marriage situation that's on the rocks and there's and one party keeps trying to work it when the other one doesn't and you know you know if it worked out there's one that kept pulling it together and um, so it's the same way with God and his people I the Lord am your God and God did everything for the people 
He brought them out from the land of Egypt. And this phrase, open your mouth and I will fill it. Now, it may just refer to the fact that God rains down manna every day. <clears throat> it may be more than that. It may be, remember the reason God fed them with manna every day, Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3, is because He's showing them they should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of God's mouth. So maybe the word, the, the mouths that, they're, that are being filled are being filled with more than simply food, physical food. But it does show God is behind all our blessings. But what is the history of Israel in the Old Testament? Is the history of Israel, and we could add the history of the church, listening to God or not listening? Well, verse 11, but my people did not listen to my voice. And Israel did not obey. They did not obey me. Now, some of your translations may be worded a little differently for did not obey me or... Um, uh, did not submit to be, but, but the word really carries with it an idea of just rejection of God. They just, they didn't listen, they rejected him and says, I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. I want you to notice about verse 12 and verse 13. Now I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, the, the ESV obscures this. Unfortunately, I noticed that. But the word walk in verse 12, 81 verse 12, the word walk, same Hebrew word is used in verse 13, walk. In verse 12, the people are walking in their own devices. They're walking their own way. They're walking, the word actually carries with the idea of their own counsel. They are following their ways and their will. And this is contrasted in verse 13. Oh, that Israel would walk in my way. All throughout the Bible, the challenge of God's people and the challenge of God's people today is are we going to walk in His way or are we going to walk in our way? Are we going to walk by His way or are we going to follow our own counsel and do what we want to do? And sometimes it may manifest itself in horrible ways. Sometimes it may be so subtle that someone would really have to look carefully at the text to detect the mistake that we've made. But, but it's a question we always face. But I want you to see too, as some writers have suggested about verse 12, when God gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart, that this is a true example of their punishment fitting the crime. They have refused to walk in God's way. They've rejected Him. And so God hands them over or gives them over to the stubbornness of their heart. When you hear that phrase about God gave 
them over. Are there any passages that you think of in that regard? Romans 1, 18-32, I think uses that expression three times. I think it's verse 24, 26, 28 that Romans 1 uses that. He gave them over to uh, defile themselves in, in various ways. It is also used in Stephen's sermon of the people of Israel in Acts 7 verse 42. God gave them over. And here this is God's statement on the history of Israel. I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart. There's no book that uses that word stubbornness more frequently than the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah uses it... Um, I've got down, just on my paper, I've got down some eight references to Jeremiah using it. If you want to see those afterwards, feel free, feel free to ask. I'll be glad to, to give them to you. Um, I want us to look at one of those passages, though, in Jeremiah 7, because I really think this is instructive. I really think this is instructive. Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7 is going to refer back to the events of Mount Sinai. John alluded to those earlier. It's going to refer to Mount Sinai and some of God's first instructions. And some of the first things God said. And I want to ask you to think about this. What is the first thing God said to his people? He's making a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. This is even before the Ten Commandments. Think about it just a moment. I may come back to that, okay? But let's look here. Verse 21. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat flesh. What stood out about burnt offerings? You didn't eat it. <laughs> you didn't eat it. The worshiper didn't eat it. The priest didn't eat it. You didn't eat a spurt offering. You didn't eat any portion. It was all given to God. And Jeremiah is saying, go ahead and eat it. What's he saying there? Well, we have to keep reading. Add burnt offerings to your sacrifices, eat flesh. Verse 22. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. For I did not speak, uh, but, but, excuse me, verse 23. But this is what I did say to them, what I commanded them. Say, obey my voice. And I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk in all the way which I command you, that it may go well with you. What was the first thing God said to Israel when they gathered at Mount Sinai? God said, obey my voice. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. He said, obey my voice. He's referring to that here. Obey my voice. Now, what's that? First rule 
is to keep all rules, to obey all rules. What this is saying is the first thing God asks of the people is a submission to Him. That we're going to, He's the God who brought us out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage and He brought us on eagle's wings to Himself and He says, Obey my voice. Just submit to me. Listen to me. Do whatever I say. Because I'm always going to say things in your best interest. But He said, God just wants you to obey Him and to walk in His way. If you want to sum it all up, that's it. And He said, if you're not going to do that, you might as well go ahead and eat your burnt offerings. In verse 24, but they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil heart and went backward and not forward since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet you did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck and did more evil than their fathers. God wanted in Israel, Psalm 81 shows, Jeremiah 7 shows, God wanted a people that would submit to Him, that will say, you are our God, we're listening to your voice, and we're going to do what you say. That's not that complicated, is it? It's not that complicated. And that's what God wanted most. And when God says, I want you to obey me and walk in my way, they didn't obey and they walked in the stubbornness of their heart. But as Gary said earlier, that is not the way God wants it to be. And I love verse 13. Oh, that my people would listen to me and that Israel would walk in my ways. I want to tell you, like I say several times, God wants you to be saved and God wants you to go to heaven and He wants that for you more than you want that for yourself because God is an infinite being can love to a greater degree. Oh, that my people would listen to me. He is longing for a people who will surrender to him and do his will and walk in his ways. And God says here, if you would do that, I would have brought your enemies down. In verse 14, I would subdue your enemies. I would turn my hand against their adversaries. And even those who hate you, excuse me, they hate the Lord in verse 15. If they hate the Lord, this is not going to be a willing submission, but, but they're going to have to, they're going to have to be forced to bow down to him in verse 15. And they will experience punishment. God longs to defeat our enemies. God longs to bless us abundantly. I will feed you with the finest of wheat. Not only wheat, but the finest of wheat. You know, the word finest there actually 
in Hebrew is um, fat. The fat portions uh, of the wheat. Um, when the Bible, when Joseph promises his brothers, the fat of the land will be yours. He's promising them the best part of the land. Uh, when uh, the Israelites offered their fat to the Lord, I think that represented the best of what they had. I know that the most coveted part of um, of a cattle in most of our diets is not liver. That was part of the Old Testament. But you know, I've been told in the poorest places in the world where they don't eat meat often. Those are still the most coveted places. Those coveted parts of the animal. Because they recognize how filled that is with minerals and vitamins that they're not going to get at other times. And but my, my point in that is Israel, ancient Israel was probably closer. They're probably closer to the situation in those poor countries than they are to our situation. Those are recovery portions. But they gave the best of that animal to God in sacrifice. But God longed to feed His people with the finest of wheat and to give them honey from the rock. Do you often get honey from a rock? And the point is God can give great blessings from unexpected places. And um, I just think that's powerful. What, what thoughts do you have there? Or questions do you have there? I like the reference to satisfy there in verse uh, 16 and back in verse 10. Open your mouths wide and I will fill it. Yes. The, uh, so the attitudes, hunger yes. and thirsting for righteousness, mm. and you will be filled or satisfied Absolutely. the version you read. Absolutely. That is a good point. And God can satisfy us physically and spiritually. He can satisfy and satisfy our needs. You know, I, I, I like going through this chapter and just saying, what does the chapter teach me about God? And, and here are some things that I kind of came up with. If you, These are good takeaway points maybe to, to write in your Bible. But maybe sometime, Lord willing, in 20 years, John can say, hey, I got these notes. I don't remember where I got them from. Um, but Psalm 89, God is worthy of praise. That's the way the psalm starts in 81 verses 1 through 3. All of the things in this chapter ultimately lead us to this goal. It ultimately leads us to this note of praise. And particularly, God saved or rescued His people from Egypt or slavery. Because Egypt and its slavery and bondage is a picture of slavery and bondage to, to Assyria, to Babylon, and ultimately to sin. And you see that 
especially in verses 6 and 7 and verse 10. I, the Lord, am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And God calls us to listen to Him. You see that particularly in verse 8. Listen to me, my people, and to serve Him exclusively in verse 9. And then God longs for us to do right and to bless us. God is on our side. And when verse 8, in particular verses 13 through 16, God wants His people to do right. God is not our enemy. God is our friend. Now, we can make Him an enemy by defying Him. And He is an enemy against whom we cannot stand. But God is not wanting that relationship. God is wanting to save and to bless and to bring us in relationship with Him. Now I'll tell you something else that hit me that was helpful to me and, and I don't know if I've been thoroughly investigating this like I should. The last two Psalms we've studied, Psalm 79 and 80, Psalm 79 is the people have experienced the destruction of the temple, the slaughter of the people. It seems to be written after 587 B.C. And in, in verse 2 of Psalm 79, they've given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beast of your earth, the, the earth. Verse 3, they poured out their blood like water around Jerusalem. And, and it asks if God is going to be angry forever in verse 5. In Psalm 80, the Bible pictures Israel as a vine and God has done everything for the vine to be productive. But look at verse 12. The question is asked, Psalm 80, 12, Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass by pick its fruit? This is what I'm trying to express. Psalm 79, Psalm 80 both do a very good job of expressing the people's feeling of disappointment, defeat as they are in captivity. But there are very few references to the people's sins. There is a request in Psalm 79 and verse 9, deliver us and forgive our sins for your sake. There's a little reference, but not much. But this is what I'm saying. Psalm 81 helps us keep this all in context. The fact that people are in captivity, the fact the vine has had its 
wall broken down and foreigners have been able to easily pick its fruit, it's not God's fault. It's their fault. They haven't listened to Him. And I will say, even when we have a profound consciousness of our own sin, we are a lot more likely probably to pray Psalm 79 and 80 than Psalm 81. In a sense, we just see things from our perspective and we know how we're being pressed and we don't know how much longer we can stand and we're asking how long. But we see from Psalm 81, from God's perspective, He said, I'm wanting you to listen. I'm wanting to bless. I want you to do the right thing. But you've walked in the stubbornness of your heart. And you've not listened to me. I don't know how to apply that to every situation. And right now I'm not seeking that. But I do know. There is sometimes a failure to realize how our own faults may bring us to a crisis. God help us to have eyes to see that. Um, what should I? What did I say that I should have said, or what do you have questions on, Karen? So, in John mentioned the verbs in six and seven. Um, you know, they were relieved, they were freed, they were delivered and answered. Is there any significance in that the last one there is tested? Like that seems the opposite of, that seems like a bad thing to me, but uh, the other one seemed pretty good. Are we to look at that as a good thing from God like the rest? Or hmm, that is, That's a good point. Uh... God's testing of Abraham was positive in Genesis 22 because it is to build his faith and strengthen him. The way Israel responded to the test didn't bring good out of it um, in Exodus 17 or Numbers 20. But I would say God's testing is not from the standpoint... God, you know, the Bible says God doesn't tempt us to evil. God's not trying to solicit us to sin. God is testing us in an effort to strengthen our faith. It did work with Abraham. Didn't work sometimes with Israel, but it wasn't God's fault, it was the people's fault. But I think you make a good point that, that maybe we are to see that as a positive thing in light of those other verbs that are used. That, that, that God's purpose for this was good, that he might save and bless his people. But overall, I, you know, we do see the picture. He saves them and he, he did end up bringing water out of that rock in uh, Egypt. It should have strengthened their faith. Maybe with some it did. Yeah, I'm reminded of James chapter 1 in that discussion. You know, verses 2 and 3, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Yes. Let endurance have its perfect result, and you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay. 
It's the same chapter that was referring to earlier, let no one say he's tempted, he's tempted right. God. So verses 2 through 4 shows the positive results right. that can come from testing. But we can't claim God is trying to solicit us to do evil in verse 13. So it's a good point. It's interesting though in verse 10 that God proved them and then he's almost asking them, you, you test me if I won't. If I won't follow through, God doesn't ask us to do anything He wouldn't do yeah. Himself. Um, yes. He, in Malachi, he, yes. he he said, you know, you you trust and give me the full tithe, and see if I won't open the, the, the storehouses from heaven. That is right. Absolutely right. In Malachi three eight through twelve that John refers to, and so yes, good thought. Is it in Exodus? 17, that's actually what the verse is, the verse says is he tested they, they tested they tested the Lord. Uh-huh. If, if you go back and read it. In verse 7? I think so, yeah. Is it verse 2 that says that God tested them? Or is it does it say God they tested God? Let me look here. Why do you why do you test the Lord in two? Okay. And, okay. In, I may be thinking... Yes, yeah, in verse 7. And because they tested the Lord. Okay. So they test the Lord. It may be 16.4 that I'm thinking of that God says He's going to test them with a man. Uh, if you look at Exodus 16.4, mm-hmm. is it? So God is testing them through those trials of the wilderness. They are tempting God in, in an unright way. That I may test them. Okay. So... Now, we come to the end of the class and we talk about Jesus in Psalm 81. This wasn't as easy as, as Psalm 80, uh, divine. But what did you all come up with? Go ahead, David. Yeah, in verse 13... Yeah, oh, that my people would listen to me and Israel would walk in my ways. Reminded of Jesus' statement at the end of Matthew 23. Okay. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hand gathers your chicks under your wings, but you were unwilling. Very good. Yeah. Just like God wanted Israel to listen. So did Jesus. Jesus says, I came not to uh, bring f- peace on earth with a sword. Uh, he came to bring peace. But he was rejected in his offer of peace. And so the result was going to be that it was going to be war. That it was going to be conflict. He would have loved to bring peace. Oh Israel, how often I would gather you together. You know, if it was just up to God, whether everybody would be saved or not, God would have everybody saved. But people persist in their rebellion, in their disobedience, in their hard-heartedness to God. That's very good. I think his statement is it's also found, I think it's Luke 13, 34. That, that statement is found. Yeah, I've got a reference to Luke 13, 34, 35. Okay, we'll put 35 there. Well, what else? Anything? 
reminded me, um, I really just shoulder the burden reminded me of um, Matthew 11, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And also okay. Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Okay. Um, first of all, the um, relieved the yoke. I don't know how to spell relieved all of a sudden. Um, remove. Let's just put remove. I can spell that. Remove the yoke. Okay, in Matthew 11, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In which passage of Galatians did you mention there? Galatians 6 2. Okay. Fulfill is uh, bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, I thought about two. Where in Galatians 5, he mentioned about um, you, you've been freed from the yoke of slavery and don't be entangled again. And some of those Jewish teachers were coming and demanding the people be circumcised. And um, so, so those are some passages that go with that idea as well. God breaking the yoke uh, from off of us. Um, good, very good. What else? And we'll be fed with the finest of food, and Jesus is the bread of life. Well, okay, say that again, Becky. And we'll be fed with the finest of wheat, and Jesus is the bread of life. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I thought about that. I thought about that too with verse 10. Open your mouth, and I will fill it. And, and Jesus, as the bread of life. Hey, God has got the greatest of blessings available to us. Ask and you shall find. Or, ask and you shall receive. That's right. Um, but, um, but yeah, all of these ways Jesus fulfills it. Good. You're, we're on a roll. I think we got momentum here. What else? One, one other thing I had thought of is, um, well, one writer said this. He said, Jesus as the obedient son is a stark contrast with Israel, the disobedient son. Uh, so Jesus, he emphasizes, he always does the will of his father. And he says that so many times. Um, one of the times, I believe right there in that midst of that bread of life discussion, I believe it's John 6 verse 30, one of many times that he emphasizes that um, ooh, got my verse wrong um, oh no it's always embarrassing to get your verse wrong um, well but Jesus does emphasize how he comes to do the will of his Father um, over and over throughout the Gospel of John, particularly. Um, 
John 8, 28, when you see the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things as the Father taught me. So He always does God's will, and that is a contrast to Israel. But also the fact that just like we say, listening to God has always been an important point and. God says about Jesus, listen to him, hear him. In Matthew. Also along that line where he says uh, in verse 13, oh then my people will listen to me. How many times did Jesus say, He that has the near let him hear? Okay. Matthew 13, verse 9, particular in a parable of the sower. And all those parables start that way. And uh, he who has an ear, uh, let him hear. But it's just it's just another way of showing us he is wanting people to listen. He is not trying to craft a message that's so confusing that nobody can understand it. He is trying to speak to communicate this to know him. Yes. Um, in verse fifteen, when it talks about the haters of the Lord pretend submission to him, I thought of the the soldiers putting the crown and robe and hail king of the Jews like. Then they're mocking of him. Like, yes, they, that, is, that is right. That, that we see them kind of acting out that submission. Now, that was very pretended obedience. I would like to maybe put that verse up there. Also, we see the soldiers doing that in Matthew 27. About verse 29 and 30, I believe. But also with Philippians 2, because the day is coming in which all will bow. And all will submit. The, uh, the blessing of, of, of food uh, in verse 16, from the rock, First uh, Corinthians okay. 10. Okay, they drank the same spiritual food, or drank the same spiritual drink, ate the same spiritual food from the rock, and the rock was Christ. If I ever um, think I really got a good handle on that passage, the rock was Christ, I'm going to preach on it. That's my goal. Sometimes you ever hear me? It's on the recording. If you if you ever hear me one day preach on that, you see, there's been there's there's a lot more knowledge than there exists at this present time. That's what I'll say. Uh, but but yes, however we interpret that, I do think that does show us how God can bring those blessings through Christ. Yeah, very good. Very good, guys. Y'all got more than, uh, and y'all always do on this section. You come up with a lot that I didn't. And uh, that's why I wait to record my podcast till afterwards. But I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things exciting. One, Christy talked to a, a person in the congregation we were last in today that was sick. and um, her, she, was, she was talking to her husband and says, What? Is Tommy cutting off his podcast at Psalm 80? So I said, Somebody, somebody is living in anticipation of these things. And that was exciting. <laughs> but I also tell you this, this got, this got me a little nervous. Russ Jones got to me a couple weeks ago and says, I want to tell you, I can't wait till you get on Psalm 82. 
Uh, and the reason he said that is Psalm 82 has been, uh, and how particularly John 10 uses that, has been a big issue. One, one man has written about this, and it has gotten a following everywhere. So what I'm saying is I'm worried about next week. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, you know, when some people are too excited looking for it, and they're looking for me to answer a specific problem and difficulty, I don't know if I can be able to provide it, but I'll do the best. I'll do the best I can. But uh, it's only eight verses next week. But the use of that statement in Psalm 82, 6, you are God's in John 10. I'm going to have a lot, try to, try to learn a lot between now and next week. But thank you for being here. Um, it is a blessing. We have a good crowd. I don't know. We have, did anybody count it? Somebody count this crowd. We need to point a counter here. Um, but we'll wait till after the prayer. But uh, okay, Avery is okay. Okay, you want to lead us in prayer, Isaiah? Lord God of heaven and earth, you are powerful. You are mighty. Your uh, your power is is shown in the Exodus and in your bringing your people forth. We see continually. Uh, in our lives that you've brought us out of slavery and you've, you've freed us from the bondage that, that holds us back and we are so thankful for that. Help us in every difficulty that we are in to trust in you to lead us out of it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.